0: The Advanced Research Projects Agency for Health has proceeded with its promised network of health innovation sites. Anchoring the network are three regional hubs, also planned at the inception of ARPA-H. Here with what they hope for this network, the director of the agency's Project Accelerator Transition Innovation Office, Craig Gravitz. Mr. Gravitz, good to have you with us.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Okay, lots of questions here. These three regional hubs and a network of other institutions connected What are you doing here? You're not just creating a lot of bureaucracy and cost, are you?
1: Absolutely not. So to really understand what we're doing, you have to understand my function at the agency. So I'm the director of transition. I've worked in government R&D for many, many years. And one of the risks is that we create these wonderful technological solutions and they sit on the shelf. So the way that you make sure that these technological solutions actually get to people and help people is by understanding what your transition pathway is. And fundamentally, this network is about creating these transition pathways to take it from the lab to the human.
0: We like to say you're bridging the valley of death with a superstructure.
1: Right. Yeah, for sure. So that's my function in the, in the agency, is to really come up with a transition strategy for our programs at scale. So I'm very motivated and influenced by human-centered design. And there's this concept that was popularized by the design firm IDEO, and it's all about how innovation happens. Picture a Venn diagram. So there's feasibility, that's the technical innovations themselves. So think about all the things that our program managers will do at ARPA H, that's technical feasibility. But in order to get things out into the real world, you need to really think about two other pieces. One is desirability, so that's people, the wants and needs of actual human beings, your customers are think about issues like trust, affordability, understanding being able to communicate to people what you're doing. That's desirability. And then the other element is viability. markets. you know we're creating technological um, innovations that are going to have to live somewhere. you know what do the markets have to say about that? What is the regulatory strategy? How do you make a solution that fits with the current FDA paradigm? How does it get reimbursed through CMS? And so my theory is that you really need to get at the bullseye of those three elements, feasibility, the technology, desirability, the people, and viability, the markets. And these hubs, they roughly correspond to those three things.
0: These hubs are located where?
1: So our viability or our market investor hub, that's located in Boston. Our desirability or our our customer experience hub, that's located in Dallas. And right now loosely affiliated with this effort, but not necessarily part of it, It will be our stakeholder and operations hub. That'll be located somewhere in the the Washington, D.C. area. That wasn't part of the original competition that we did.
0: Plus, you have a list of several other institutions that are part of the innovation network, you might call it.
1: Yes. That's the most important part of this, and really what I hope your listeners will take out of it, is that if RPH is really going to solve for all Americans, which is our mission, we need to be across all of America. And so it's less about the hubs themselves and more about the networks that they create. So for instance, we have our Investor Catalyst Hub in Boston. One of the requirements of the competition was not just, yeah, they have these amazing capabilities in Boston, and they do, it's that they have the ability to reach all across the country into similarly situated institutions in rural areas and urban areas, all across from the from the East Coast to the West Coast and everything in between. The idea is that markets aren't just in Boston, they're all across the country. And the same thing with our customer experience hub that's based out of Dallas there are human beings with different wants, needs, desires, hopes, and dreams all across the country. And so it's not addressed about the site. It's about their reach, the depth and breadth of their network all across the country.
0: And these hubs then consist of several groups that got together and made a bid to ARPA-H to become a hub.
1: Absolutely. And then what's really exciting is that we used other transaction authority to do this so we have a very flexible strategy where we can bring on additional spokes if you think about it as a hub and spoke network with every effort that we do we have the ability to bring on different types of institutions and I'll give you a for instance right now through our customer experience network we're doing a project accelerating clinical trial readiness otherwise known as actor and really that's all about making sure that clinical trials are more accessible to people all across the country. We're doing what's called a network activation call right now, where that brings in basically a 360 degree view of all the types of institutions that are involved with clinical trials. And so new spokes, we're recruiting them right now. It would be unreasonable to think that with the original call, we could have thought about every possible permutation of every effort that we do inside RPH. And so with each effort that we do, we'll bring in new spokes so that we're able to be all across the country.
0: We're speaking with Craig Gravitz. He's director of the Accelerator Transition Innovation Office at the Advanced Research Projects Agency for Health, part of HHS. Well, maybe walk us through the journey map of what happens if somewhere, someone out there develops, you know, the artificial kidney that you can strap on your belt, you know, and do away with dialysis. I mean, I'm making this up, but I know that happens to be one of HHS's off-again, on-again types of uh, endeavors. And it's feasible. Then what? How would this get across that valley of death using this network of networks that you've described? So
1: I can't speak to that technology specifically, but I, I will sort of loosely voice track the journey map. So imagine a program manager. So everything at arpa is driven by a program manager, an expert in his or her field. They will take one of these efforts, like the one you described, and they'll be working in their program to unblock the different technical milestones to do that. So with the you know an artificial kidney, it could be getting the belt. <laughs> it could be building the kidney, all, all of those other things. That individual will be working through that now. In parallel, my team helps figure out all of the other risks to getting it out into the real world. So there's obviously going to be FDA considerations for this. How do you make sure that there's a, an appropriate regulatory approval path for that to happen? And so we'll be working closely with FDA to understand whether this comports with the things that they require for things to be safe and effective. Uh, We also need to be thinking through how this would be reimbursed with CMS or through other payers. And so what my team does is we help, in parallel to the science, de-risk all of these other things. We also have to think through what the business models will be for this. And so think about one pathway, the CX network. We'll be thinking about okay, that sounds really great, that that artificial kidney. What do actual people think of that? Would that be scary to them? Is that something, as we're starting to roll this out, is there even a market for that? There's things that, from a scientific perspective, sound amazing, but when you actually get to humans, there are real roadblocks to doing that. They might not trust the solution. Or, candidly, a lot of reasons why products fail are these sort of basic user design things. Like the product itself might work, but it could be uncomfortable, it could be painful, it could be expensive. And so we need to make sure while the science is being developed, we're thinking through all of these other considerations. And so if you think about it, a path, in parallel to all of these technical milestones, what my team does, especially through these networks, is we de-risk all of these other elements so that when you get to the finish line, there's not only a market for it in terms of people who enthusiastically want to adopt it, but there's also a business model associated with it, a company that will be able to sell it in the marketplace and be able to provide it at a, at a reasonable price to human beings, not just for the wealthy, but for you know all of us, people like you and me.
0: And this sounds like a lot to orchestrate. And is that basically what your office does in Washington is to make sure all these parts mesh while they're moving towards the eventual commercialization here?
1: Yes. So previously, before coming to ARPA-H, I worked in a research and development at the Defense Department. And so one of the things that DOD research has, especially DARPA, I wasn't at DARPA, but you know, this is true broadly for any R&D that happens at the Defense Department, is that you de-risk that technical milestone and the follow-on funder is some entity inside DoD. The main difference, aside from the mission set, between DARPA and ARPA-H is that we don't have the DoD to be that follow-on funder to create that pull-through. The reason why my office exists is to sort of reverse engineer that pull-through, make sure that there's someone willing to adopt it. So one of my favorite stories about DARPA, if you think back to stealth technology, the program manager who developed that had you know two gentlemen from the Air Force right there, and there's the original test flight. And that moment is what really made the Air Force interested in funding stealth because they saw that it was true. Wow, this technical milestone truly has been unblocked. At ARPA H, we don't have the same <laughs> ability to grab two gentlemen who control the purse strings. You know, we have to find some other way to make our version of stealth survive in the wild. So, yes, it is a lot to orchestrate to create these networks. However, if we want to actually succeed and build these technologies that actually get used and enthusiastically adopted by, you know, all Americans, we need to make sure that there is that follow-on funder.
0: Anything in the pipeline right now that looks promising?
1: Yeah, so you could go on our website and you can take a look at some of the initial programs that we have launched. We have um, you know a number of you know, open calls and things that are be in you know evaluation right now. But you can look at, at all of those things right now. Two of them that come to mind which are really exciting is our Nitro program it is uh, developed by Dr. Ross Yurek. This is what if joints could heal themselves. So think about osteoarthritis and all the problems that that creates for mobility and and, the obesity that comes from not being able to move around and pain. Well, what if you could uh, do something so that instead of having to get a surgery to replace something, you just get a shot? And so- If this succeeds, we could use this network to, you know, potentially reduce manufacturing costs. Or we could do user acceptance testing in terms of, like, the concept. Is this scary? Is there some way that we can, you know, present this in a way that people will understand what it is? So that one's really exciting. And then we have a number of them, but just another one that, that comes to mind is Precision Surgical Interventions launched by Dr. Ilana Honku. This is all about getting rid of all the cancer in your body when you have cancer instead of you know the current state of the art, which is get rid of what you can see and then just hope it doesn't come back. You know, her concept is, what if you can get rid of all of it in one shot?
0: Wow. So Sounds like some exciting things going on, and now the network has stood up. Next steps are what? So right
1: now we're onboarding a number of spokes. So as I mentioned earlier in the interview, we really need to be solving for all Americans and being everywhere. And so we're just trying to recruit all different types of institutions, both traditional, you know, fund-seeking entities, the the, you know, the types of folks who respond to calls uh, for proposals, um, but also non-traditional entities like community health centers hospital systems, other experts. And we're deep into recruiting all of those spokes right now because we recognize this network will only work if we have just a broad range of players, both traditional and non-traditional.
0: Craig Gravitz is director of the Accelerator Transition Innovation Office at the Advanced Research Projects Agency for Health, part of Health and Human Services. Thanks so much for joining me.
1: Thanks for having me. It's great to be here.
0: And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to The Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style.
3: and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission.
2: Yeah, excellent. We're we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well. But it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many